America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest all right. And so just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, the continued saga of the RRP5, as we are really approaching the conclusion of the steps of injustice in this case. We're going to continue that tonight, as we, we are very close to wrapping up this story. But again, the continued journey of injustice of the RRP5. Hang on, folks. We take off right now. Gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as a as we alluded to earlier, the completion we believe tonight is our goal to conclude the journey of the RP five. Uh, we are deep into the trial, from what I gather, David, uh, from last week. We have seen some things. We're going to try to cap this tonight, that we might get it out to our listeners across the country and to various groups and organizations that will want to 
uh, learn more about this story. So uh, bear with us tonight. You feel free to dial in at 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628, and we're going to get in discussion on the RP 5 journey. David, where are we in this process uh, tonight starting off as we, again, attempt to conclude uh, the story tonight? Well, we want to get into, uh, obviously, everybody has a Sixth Amendment right to call witnesses uh, in their favor. Um, our witnesses, uh, and probably our most important witness, was uh, the judge and the prosecutor worked together to ensure they didn't testify. So Judge Arguello and Matthew Kerr, so they could ensure that, that we can get a, that they could get a conviction. Uh, and some of those things, the jury a- actually asked about where was the evidence that we presented during the course of trial. Uh, and that was during uh, jury deliberations. So something, even the jury recognized that there was something wrong uh, because they heard things in court, but didn't see any evidence come back uh, to the jury room uh, regarding what they heard. So they really couldn't go back and, and uh, review evidence they heard at trial uh, to make them more informed and better prepared to make, make it, make a decision. And that was all brought about because of uh, uh, Judge Argoyle and Matthew Kirk working together to ensure we didn't get a fair trial. No, absolutely right. Kendrick, your thoughts? Yeah, it's just it's it's one of those issues where our country says that we're transparent, especially on trials and our in our, our legal system. And you, we, you notice a hole there in how do you verify that everything that was spoken during trial and all the evidence presented during trial that was asked to be submitted as evidence is brought before the jury? How does the jury understand what evidence? is there what their rights are can they ask for more evidence so a lot of these things because there is like this hole in the system i'm convinced that there was not there was not there were certain pieces of information that were left out of the jury that they didn't get uh there we have no uh uh way to know where they really sequestered properly so that there was no influence from any outside forces but the the people in the jury so I, i Part of, of all the things that happened in our trial that were just irregular or just downright illegal, I have no reason to trust that once it started to get to deliberations, that everything that was that was supposed to be given to the jury for consideration was actually handed over to that jury. No, absolutely. Clint, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, we do know what was said in the courtroom uh, by the judge, you know, toward the jury. And we'll get into more details uh, of that. So there, there was an overt, explicit threat made uh, to the jury uh, that actually uh, caused them to, you know, quiver and give pause to any kind of, uh, you know, rights or insistence that they would have to say, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, we need more. So I'm sure we'll get into those details, but uh, we definitely saw uh, things that were will be considered irregular uh, in this case. All right, David, take us down now to the beginning um, of of where we, not the beginning per se, but where we left off, where we come in here as we as we uh, work towards the conclusion here. Well, uh, the what's been happening at trial thus far, uh, based on our discussion and the evidence that, was, uh, that we put forth, was that there was a concerted 
effort by both the prosecutor, uh, Matthew Hirsch, and the judge, federal judge, Christina Arguello, to uh, prohibit us and really to thwart our ability to be able to put on evidence and present everything we needed to the jury. That that started with, uh, from the very beginning, she, she, she said she knew this was a scam and she had never heard any evidence early, early in proceedings. Uh, she went about to, uh, General Goyal went about to violate our Fourth Fifth Amendment right uh, by forcing us to testify, coercing us to testify under the threat of resting our defense uh, where we wouldn't be able to put on a defense. Uh, which was which was another major issue. The other issue we spoke about was the government's own witnesses contradicted uh, virtually everything in the government's indictment. Judge Arguello uh, uh, admitted we impeached all their witnesses, but she still refused to dismiss the case. Now we step forward. Uh, uh, we had uh, the case of the missing transcript. It disappeared uh, during the violation of our Fifth Amendment rights. She said she didn't know exactly what she said to us, but uh, wouldn't produce the transcript. Well, you would think she would want to exonerate herself if she indeed uh, was confident she didn't uh, violate our Fifth Amendment rights. And now as we move forward through the trial after that, we're still struggling, uh, doing the best we can, and we get to the place where we have to put on our expert witness. And... She puts up on the stand and then says you can't testify. Uh, and then, obviously, we, we, we breached the subject with the appellate court and what occurred at the appellate court. Uh, all this stuff happened at trial, but the appellate court uh, did absolutely nothing about it. The justice system is uh, it's broken, and justice and getting uh, trying to get justice into this, this system is an intractable problem. It is virtually impossible to get justice. Uh, decisions are made by judges and prosecutors on who they want. Uh, just, that's a system that's set up for them to have a job and to uh, have this prestige, uh, prestigious title, but they're not there about justice. They're just there... Uh, 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 lack of a better term, uh, participating in a theater uh, and engaged in this self-righteous behavior and promoting themselves. It's all about self-promotion, nothing to do with justice. Well, there you have it. And we continue to see that uh, the agenda was set from the very beginning. This was not something that uh, developed. Uh, this was an, a premeditated act on, on the part of Judge Christine Arguello. John Walsh, Matthew Kirsch, and I keep forgetting the other lady's name. Susan, what's her name? Sunitha Hazra. What is it? Sunitha Hazra. Yeah, and so she's part of the the whole uh, conspiracy. They want to try to charge the IRP-5 with conspiracy, but the conspiracy at a greater far extent uh, should have been called on behalf of the court. This was a conspiracy uh, to derail the IRP-5 uh, who had developed this software to keep America safe. Let's not get that out of our mind. This was the sole purpose of the software for the, by the IRP-5 was to keep the homeland safe. If that is attacked because someone has a hidden agenda, 
within the judicial process. Those that really hindered this, Judge Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh, should be locked up. That's obstruction. No matter how you look at it. Dave, your thoughts? When you look at this and you see the motions that were put in front of the court from early on in this process, the judge denied them over and over again. You would think that there would be a an equality between what you see and what is what is happening. When you see that you have a strong motion against um, speedy trial, and it's just just denied. I, when we start with the first day of trial was her denying motion after motion after motion, and okay, we're going to trial. And you see that. Like you said, the decision was made beforehand. Absolutely was. Uh, Dennis, all the stuff that we've talked about over this show in reference to the RP5, you see that this justice system, I mean, from point from from the beginning, from the inception, as soon as it, it started, was already against these guys. I mean, when a, when a, uh, when motions were denied. Uh, expert witnesses uh, not given the opportunity uh, to witness on these men's behalf. All this stuff just continued to happen uh, throughout this trial, and it shows you that uh, the RP5 never got a fair chance uh, to present their case because it, it, it really looked at the case that had already been decided by a corrupt judge uh, in cohorts with uh, a corrupt prosecutor. So Again, what we're hearing tonight and what we've already heard throughout the week. <laughs> it's just, I got you. It's, it's just, it's, it's a mess. Right. It's a mess. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, hearing these guys talk about their different, you know, uh, precarious situations. I mean, it's, it's, I can liken it to basically you get put into a fight, but we're going to tie your hands behind your back. These guys, they couldn't defend themselves. They couldn't put up, a, you know, anything substantial because, I mean, to Dave's point, I mean, she, when she sits sits there the whole first day and it's just motion after motion, deny, 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 deny. Like, if that didn't register with the jury at that moment, it should have. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they go in and, I mean, we have five executives from a, from a business that are out here building software, as to your point, that it was designed to defend the homeland. But rather than, you know, pay any attention to their credibility, any any attention to the fact these men have never had a problem, you know, with the law, except maybe a speeding ticket, they're going to look at the fact that, you know, they're going to pay attention to some, you know, agenda-minded, basically courtroom politicians and go right along with it. And I think there was a point where even the, the jury had asked, you know, is there any more evidence? And they weren't even allowed to present that. Oh, absolutely right, Dave. And just remember, this is the same judge that presided over the Luana Banks-Clark trial that would not allow evidence showing her innocence into court. No, absolutely right. I mean, look, listen, it's no secret that the process from the beginning, from out the gate, uh, was, uh, was hindered, was impeded, uh, that justice would be found here. Um, and again, uh, David, he speaks to the behavior uh, this judge, at the very beginning, the behavior was signs pointing to the red flags were up. That wait a minute, we have a problem here, and that just escalated as, as time went on as, as this trial uh, got underway. And 
can't get control. Yeah, at the end of the day, the system's not what it's cracked up to be. It's controlled by prosecutors and judges. Uh, defense attorneys, even part of the problem as well. Many defense attorneys, you don't get a good defense. They're too concerned about uh, about their uh, image in front of judges and prosecutors that they have to deal with on a daily basis, and they'll 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 they will sell you out uh, quicker than anything. Uh, they really don't care. Nobody really cares about justice, and uh, we found that out firsthand. Firsthand. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to, we're going to actually start uh, going into the trial, conclude closing arguments, all these things. We, we anticipate that tonight on this show. And at that point, uh, we'll, there will be a social media blast of this story all across the social media platforms. This is AJC Radio, the continued saga, the RP5 Injustice. We'll be right back. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried. As an adult, I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation 
that it automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can, can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you were the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Columbine, Virginia Tech. Tucson. Aurora. Fort Hood. Oak Creek. Newtown. 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 How many more? How many more? How many more colleges? How many more classrooms? How many more movie theaters? How many more houses of faith? How many more shopping malls? How many more street corners? How many more? How many more? Enough. 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 Demand a plan. Right now. As a mom. As a dad. As a friend. As a husband. As a wife. As an American. As an American. As an American. As a human being. For the children of Sandy Hook. Demand a plan. No more lists of names. It's not too soon. It's too late. Now is the time. Before we all know someone who loves someone on that list. No more lists. No more. Who they might have been. No more. If we had just done something yesterday. It's time. We can do better than this. We can do better than this. It's time. It's time. It's time for our leaders to act. Demand a plan. Right now. Right now. You! Demand it! Enough. 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 There was a shooting. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have 
join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same. Ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grady Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. I wish I was in school. Or a book report to give. I wish I was in school. I'll stay after class. I'll clean the chalkboard. I'll do extra homework. I'll skip recess. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. I really wish I was in school. lunches for your kids don't have to. Find your local food bank at feedingamerica.org slash summer meals for help. Together, we're Feeding America. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Again, the continued saga journey, if you will. I guarantee you it's not a bestseller. It's not a Hollywood production. This is an actual situation that was lived uh, by the RP5, their families, and their community. Suffered, uh, I believe, uh, damage as a result of the actions of the court, of the criminal justice system, uh, which we do not have. Uh, a justice system in this country, in my opinion, uh, based upon what we have seen and what we have lived. David, take us down into where we are now as we go forward, uh, again, approaching the conclusion of the RP5 story. Well, we, let me give a little a little uh, background before we get into the expert witness. Uh, uh, one of the expert witnesses named and was Andrew Alberelli. He's, uh, he owns a multi-million dollar staffing company. Uh, and he's a CEO or principal executive officer of that staffing company, and he has a senior account manager, both of both of which sent letters to the U.S. Attorney uh, John Walsh, uh, which was Matthew, Matthew Kirsch's boss on, on our behalf. Um, to give you a little background, we were uh, alleged it was alleged in the indictment that we duped or induced staffing companies into business arrangements based on the fact we duped these staffing companies into business arrangements based on the fact that uh, 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 that we uh, that, well the government alleged we lied about having a current or impending contract with a large federal agency law enforcement agency which in turn uh, induced staffing companies into providing us in essence with their contract that we signed and their terms uh that that by itself doesn't make sense uh 
So when you understand that the whole case was predicated on whether or not a staffing company was induced to do business with us based on something as simple as, oh, hey, Mr. Staffing Company, will you extend us credit uh, for staffing uh, based on the fact that we simply told you uh, that that we had a current or impending contract. If even if that were true, a staffing company would not just do business as any business. They're going to base it on uh, your credit, your credit credit references and background checks uh, to make sure you're credit worthy before they extend you credit. Now we discussed uh, last week what some of those staffing companies actually said on the stand that exonerated us and that they never made the decision. They based their decision on our credit profile. Mm -hmm. Now, as we move forward here, uh, our defense was to put on a staffing company executive. Uh, a staffing company executive obviously can testify to the fact on how staffing companies make decisions. And both of these people are considered experts, obviously, in the staffing industry, Andrew Alborelli and Kelly Balkum. Now, um, on the 18th of July, 2011, this is before our trial took place around September, uh, Mr. Alborelli sent a letter to the U.S. Attorney's Office, because uh, we're still trying to get the indictment dismissed. We're still not trying not to go to trial. So Mr. Alborelli sends a letter and wants to explain to him how the staff, to Mr. John Walsh and Matthew Kirsch, how the staffing industry works. And a little bit of that letter that Mr. Alborelli, uh, the principal executive officer of uh, Remy Corp, he says, I felt compelled to write this letter uh, as I've met with and had discussion with several men being indicted by you in regards to uh, this case. He says, I've been a principal, a I've been in the staffing business for 15 years, 12 of which the principal executive officer of the Remy Corps. He's also been, he said, I've, I've also been president of the staffing industry user group. So this guy is not only no staffing, he, he's the uh, president of a of an industry working group. Uh, and he says, uh, he also worked with the FBI on staffing frauds. So there couldn't be a better witness that we could put on the stand than Mr. Alborelli. And, and, and keep in mind, we as defendants, every defendant in this country has a right to put on a defense and to call witnesses in their favor. Uh, in our case, Judge Arguello and Matthew Kirsch conspired together to deny us these witnesses based on the most frivolous of, of issues. Now, so after receiving the letter, uh, we uh, went, we put both Andrew Alborelli and Kel Kelly Balkum on our witness list, and we provided that to the government. So the government was on notice that these were witnesses that we were on our witness list. Uh, the government tried to argue, well, they, they're not, uh, they're not listed as expert witnesses, but uh, you can actually qualify an expert witness on the stand, and the judge is a judge is supposed to, if it's relevant, probative testimony that can help the jury understand uh, the charges and also provide a defense uh, in in helping them make a decision that they that that 
these witnesses should be allowed to testify. Furthermore, we have a Sixth Amendment right to call witnesses in our favor. So Mr. Alvarelli gets on the stand uh, and Judge Arguello allows him to say his name and where he's from, and then she stops proceeding and says she's not going to let him testify. And why not? Well, she started claiming that she didn't receive an uh, – it wasn't an expert disclosure. Well, the expert disclosure, which is under, under Rule 16 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, uh, expert disclosure is only required in civil cases. So this is a criminal case, and uh, the District of Colorado and the case law says that defendants are allowed to keep their witnesses close to the vest. They don't even have to tell you that an expert witness is going to testify in a criminal case. Uh, all that is a matter of of stout, hard case law and precedent, but they look past that and denied them from testifying. So if we can't put on a witness that we're accused of duping or lying or defrauding staffing companies and we can and we don't have the opportunity to call a witness from the staffing industry, an executive who owns the staffing company, to in our defense, how 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 is that fair? Uh We've, we've had to listen to the government put on staffing witness after staffing witness, staffing company witness, uh, probably probably 12 to 15 staffing company witnesses. We bring a couple, and they don't want to let them testify. How are we supposed to get a fair trial, put on a defense, when Mr. Alberelli and Kelly Balkum has a lot to say about not only uh, that we didn't commit a crime, but that our, that our business practices were, were consistent with staffing industry practices. Which, is, which makes a huge difference in what the jury is thinking, uh, and what the jury's knowledge to the fact that these are experts. These, this, these are experts that will testify that there was no irregular, ir, anything irregular about the actions of the IRP-5, that it was normal protocol for business. Right. Uh, that makes a huge difference, but it speaks to the bias of Judge Arguello. Exactly. And, li- and now, if you listen now, the government said we told them we had a, a large government contract. This was in the indictment. Now, in Alvarelli's letter, see, the government knew what he was going to testify to, and he, knew, he also knew, both him and Judge Arguello, that it, it could destroy the government's case, this, this one witness, if he was allowed to testify. In his letter to the U.S. attorney... Uh, Andrew Alvarelli said, in our due diligence of companies, we have found the term contract, in quotes, has little to no bearing on whether we engage with that company or not. We base our decision to engage with a company on its creditworthiness, cash flow, or product they are developing. So the prosecutor and Judge Arguello had both received these letters. They were aware that this expert was going to testify and they could not allow this in front of the jury if they were going to be uh, able to hold the line to make sure uh, to keep the jury in the dark on evidence and facts uh, that would prove our innocence so you could guarantee a conviction for the United States so, government. So what you have here, 
the judge's objection to Abarelli, telling he could not testify if he received the letter regarding Abarelli's testimony prior to court, then that's a false narrative. You knew already. So why did you bother to call him up to the stand? Because you have every intention to sit him down. Right. And that's part of the, the theatrics and the, the show that really is just – we knew we weren't getting a fair shake from the beginning, even before we got to trial. But to David's point, everything that David outlined, it was going to shoot enormous holes in Matthew Kirsch's assertion of that they had a contract. It was irrelevant. It, it, and, and even to the point of when we asked these same witnesses to David's point, 12 or 15 witnesses to say, well, wouldn't it matter to you how, how much the contract was worth? No, it wouldn't matter. See, these, these are the type of foolishness that all these theatrics and shenanigans that were allowed in, uh, in this courtroom, this is, it just further put us uh, away uh, to try to do The thing is, Arguello uh, and Kirsch had full knowledge of Ms. Savarelli. And, and another point. Now, they were, throughout the trial, they were trying to trick us into letting, us, letting them know who our witnesses were. They were trying to say, well, talk to the court reporter and let them know who's on lineup. We called them that. No, we don't have to let you know who our witnesses are. Second point, when witnesses that work for the government wouldn't show up, they're trying to tell us, why don't you put on a federal agent? That's not part of our case. So now all of a sudden we have a witness, that we two witnesses that support our, our case. Now they're not qualified to to be a point. We didn't, we didn't do all the procedures, which we didn't have to do because – one, they can come up as as character witnesses to come up as as something about experts. They can be, uh, uh, as you say, validated on on the stand. But it was always an issue of every time we tried to just present our case, there was always some trick or problem with how our witnesses are going up, when they're going up, who's going up, and if they're allowed to. So it was always just this this controlled thing by the court to make sure that. If they dig it up, we're gonna we're gonna keep it so unbalanced, and and there's no way these guys are gonna be able to just present their case to the jury that was uh, cohesive and made sense. Well, the bizarre part of the judge is, if there was questions about Mr. Avarelli, it would have been raised from the time they were notified that the court was notified regarding this witness. Again, if they knew what he was to testify to as an expert. They had full knowledge of who he was, and you, they waited the, uh, uh, for the exact right time to appear to be fair. Mr. Everelli, come forward. This is stuff that they began to do was already established. Well, and keep in mind, uh, Lamont, that uh, one of the reasons the court requires, the law requires these witnesses to be identified is so the government's really not uh, caught off guard or surprise to eliminate surprise for the most part in these civil cases, but they were on our witness list. And uh, he also had these letters knowing already had a preview in that sense of what they were going to testify exactly. based on the letters that they provided. Now, Kelly Barkham uh, in her letter, she said it's important to understand that there's risk involved in the staffing and recruiting business. Well, that's any business. Any business, uh, there's risk. It's, and she, she goes on to say the agencies or firms involved with IRP were in no way forced to conduct business with these men. They chose to do so. So, the, again, these, this is what they were going to testify to. 
So these two convincing witnesses were going to educate the jury on the staffing industry. Nobody else was educating the jury on the staffing industry. The government just brought his witnesses forward to try to uh, extract from them that they were duped into doing business with us, but nobody's going to tell them outside of the government's self-serving presentation on how the uh, the staffing industry actually actually works, and and he's not a member of the staffing industry. And the court didn't like the optics. This was a this, no one had any sort of personal relationship with Andrew Abarelli where we hung out with him after work or anything like that. He was white. He wasn't. He was. This is a white businessman with uh, uh, his person, the person who was Kelly Walker. She was white. So this optic would look like, well, here's these disinterested people that will support the case that these guys are innocent. Couldn't have that on stand. Especially when you got a, a predominantly white jury you got white and hispanic and predominantly white with a few hispanics and a couple of blacks uh, uh spattered in there a little bit so the the judge set out with the intention to not give a fair trial if optics are not about justice it's not about that if these are witnesses that can testify, it's like you want this one-sided case presented to the jury and anything that will show any uh, truth to the RP5's claim, to their theory of the case, we will, re- we will not allow the jury to hear it. You would think the jury would be smart enough to figure out why it's every time these guys trying to present anything. It's just common sense to me. It's like somebody comes in the house, two kids are fighting in the front yard. One guy says, he hit me, he, he tripped me, and he poured water on me in the front yard. But every time the other kid decides to say, well, let me get to know you, we're not hearing from you. Well, mom, this is, we're not hearing from you. That's how ridiculous that is. That's ridiculous. And the fact that this judge is there to referee proceedings. But she was a corrupt referee. No, she was a member of the prosecution's team. Period. So she wore the prosecution's jersey. Exactly right. That's what happened. She was running the ball out the backfield. Uh, Matthew Kirsch was quarterbacking, handing her the ball, and she was running. I mean, when when Sunita Hazra, again, bringing this to the point where she just objects with no objection, and the judge fills in... What she's objecting for, she was a prosecutor. She was not a judge. She was there helping prosecute this case. Here's an an example of what Kendrick said during this portion of the trial is the defendants were asking a question of Abarelli, and you have, have you ever testified in a trial case? Ms. Hazra stands up and says, objection, Your Honor. The court looks at her and says, relevance, and she says, to my objection? And the court says, yes. And, and Sunita Hazra says, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. Then the court says, what's the relevance of this testimony? The prosecution didn't ask what the relevance was. The court did. And that wasn't the court's responsibility at all. Let's tell you something. From the time the judge testified for the prosecution, a mistrial should have been granted. Period. You don't testify for the prosecution, nor do you, you'll see in, in, in different court cases. Oh, the uh, they'll say, oh, 
the defense is testifying for the witness. Objection sustained. Judge, you're testifying for the, for the government of the United States. That's not your job. That is so ridiculous to me. You jump up and say, what law school did she go to? Harvard. Believe it or not. Uh, uh, believe it or not. Uh, it's, it's, it's shocking. But I, 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 know you, I know you're saying that rhetorically, but yep. it's just bears, it bears noting that she went to Harvard. So it's not like that she should have been in the dark about anything or, you know better. or Listen, confused. She knew better. So you ever remember the term, the basics? These are the basics. I don't have to go to college. Uh, just debate club, debate club in high school. Uh, law forensics in high school. These are basic things you know you don't answer. And in a common sense situation, you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, she's talking. I don't need you to talk for her. That's in human resources in, in corporate America. Somebody files a complaint, and they. Be, I don't need to hear that from you. I need to hear that from the person you're saying acted in an inappropriate manner. That's common sense. I don't have to be in law school to know, judge, what are you doing? What are you thinking right now? It's unacceptable. William. You know, as you as they were talking, it reminded me of during that time when we went to talk to, and interview the, one of the jurors. And we presented him with that letter. And you watched his face change. His whole countenance changed as you read that letter. Because he was the one guy, he said, as he was, as he was listening to the evidence and, and there during the case, he said, we were wondering... Where is the defense's evidence? And so then I said, I asked him, I said, well, this was a piece of evidence that was not allowed. You weren't allowed to read. This was not uh, allowed in the court. And he read it. I didn't read it to him. He's standing there on his front on his front door reading this letter. And you watch his face change. And that letter right there alone would have sunk everything. And we knew it. But not, only, watch, not only that, Will, his letter, his letter backed up by testimony he's hearing in court to reinforce it. It would have been, it, it would have been, it, it would have been, it would, it would have been, it would have been over at that point. And that, so, so what, you know, listening to this, I mean, we relived this. You know, you realize how much of a theater this was, a performance this was put on. Because even as you're talking, you know, you think about. The, ju- the jury has given this false persona of who the, who the judge is and the role of the judge and that this is a fair case, that, that what the evidence here is fair and impartial. Everything that you have, everything that you'll see is fair and impartial. It's, that's a lie. Well, because people are not educated with the system, their lack of information or truth about the system, the facade is what's displayed. So when you go in a courtroom... I told you that the terms used in a jury selection in the state level is the judge makes the statement because of the prestige of the office of the district attorney. Everything in proceedings is leaned toward them. They go first, presenting their case. They go last in closing arguments. This is unfair. What's left with the jury is the theory of the case by the prosecution at the state level. So what you have here, and then what we talked about weeks ago, we must rule in favor, most light, favorable, light, most favorable to, to, the the government. Prosec- to the government of the prosecution. 
That is absolutely ridiculous on every possible level. It's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. Hold that thought. I mean, Dave. And just to go right along with that, just before all of this happened, the court actually said that. The court, after listening to the defendant's motions and grounds in support thereof and the government's objections in reviewing the evidence in light most favorable to the government, hereby finds the evidence presented by the government is sufficient to sustain convictions. So this was during our our motion to dismiss the, the so, trial. So the question is, what's the point in going into a courtroom? It was a star chamber. It wasn't a courtroom. This is a matter of fact. You could have put this set on Hollywood's most famous sets for TV. The cameras are rolling. The actors are in place. Let's see how the ratings go. And the goal of the United States so-called justice system was to uh, be different than the star chambers that occurred in the 15th uh, century. And where they had oppressive, arbitrary rulings just based on secrecy in many cases and arbitrary, oppressive rulings that had nothing to do with, with, with the rule, rule of law or any law, law associated with it. You had made the statement earlier about the judge and about what was she thinking. And she was thinking, I'm going to make these men, I'm going to help that these men be convicted through the whole way. I mean, I can't remember the exact statement, but Dimitri says it all the time. And when she started out, she basically in a sense threatened the jury to say they have to pay for, what was that statement? It's something to the fact that you ah, she, you will not return uh, uh I'll, I'll give some clarification. She pretty much told the jury that the government spent I millions mean, of dollars right. on this case. She's out of and, order. Yeah, way out of order. And that uh, They would have that, to pay for it or something? Yeah, in essence, they don't want to be responsible for the government uh, having to spend millions of dollars and, in essence, not coming back with, with, the, with, the, with the verdict. And, in essence, a guilty verdict because if, if you're mentioning the government, that means come back with the verdict for the government. To the government. And that's, that's a threat. That I mean, Mike, you – I mean – Think about it. You had a guy that worked at, as a manager at Dairy Queen. We're talking uh, 2011, you know, uh, minimum weight, just say 15, 20, 16 bucks. These guys are thinking in their mind, how am I going to pay for that? Well, so yeah. that, that's, a, that's, that's singed in their mind. And you have a federal judge threatening them in behind closed doors saying, uh, you will return this. Well, to uh, suggest in any period. form or fashion that a juror may be responsible for the financially for the debt uh, uh, incurred by the government to bring a case is is well that's as unethical sick. as it gets and she there's, and there's nothing in the constitution or in federal law that says anything like that she should be 100% disbarred and and really charged that is that is so outrageously inappropriate that you would threaten a judge I mean a jury if we tamper with a jury one juror and say, well, hey, in any shape, oh my, you're going to jail for tampering with jurors. And cases overturn all the time when the judge says something inappropriate to the jury. Not in this case. Should have been done. It should have been done. Where's the appellate court? Uh, carrying water for the judge um, for, for one of their friends. It's a crony system. That's absolutely ridiculous. Well, Do you have anything else further tonight? Sorry. Um, I was just going to say, so then when that didn't work, then she came back, okay, I'm not going to let the witness testify. She, she did everything that she could so that she made sure that, like you said, she secured a conviction. Well, it's our job to 
expose this judge. Say what you want. Oh, well, how do we know? We know. We live this. These men spent eight years behind bars in federal institutions due to the fact of this judge's behavior. That is criminal, what she did. She should be charged with a crime. No other way to say it. If the average person can be charged for tampering with the juror, the responsibility to you as a judge is far greater. And they are leaning on ignorance of what this judge is saying is true. That's what I told you when they said the prestige that comes with the office of the U.S. Attorney's Office or the prosecution. People lean towards them as being truthful. And people of integrity. And people, exactly right. So in my uh, wrongful conviction case, with the jurors selected, the reason all 60 raised their hands when asked, do you believe Mr. Banks is guilty of a crime right now? No, no evidence, no testimony, nothing. Every hand in that, in, that, in that courtroom went up. And my attorney said to the jurors, if you were Mr. Banks sitting in that chair with what he just heard, how do you think he feels as far as a chance to win this case? It's reality. And nobody wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants to deal with that. That is, that is the system. That is the system. And they know that's to be the system. I was just going to say, somebody sent me this uh, um, article that says thousands of U.S. judges who broke the law and remained on the bench. And um, there was a statement in here that talks about how some of them have said racist statements, have sentenced uh, one judge in Alabama. Uh, this is for a tra- traffic ticket. They uh, sentenced a single mother to 496 days behind bars for failing to pay a traffic ticket. They said that uh, it exceeded jail time in Alabama. So you wrote the they don't even you can't even have that much time on the books of the losses. You can't even go to jail that much time for a traffic ticket. And he's still on the bench today. Over so a year. About 496 days. Yeah, that's that Reuters, Reuters uh, report that yeah, they put out uh, some time ago. That. So I just thought I would mention mention that when you're talking about judges that they basically can uh you know break the law and nothing happens we're going to take a quick break folks digest all of this we're coming back i believe in the final hour should conclude this case it is never new to me when i hear this garbage it's never new it's just as appalling from the first day i heard it this is IGC Radio. We continue the journey of the RP5 on the steps of injustice. We'll be right back. This is IJC Radio. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Kevin on stage, and I'm afraid I'll be killed by police. Not all police, just one police officer who fears first life and thinks I have a gun. I'm afraid I'll match the description of someone who called 911. The police will arrive, and before I know it, I'll be dead. Not all cops are bad, but for me, all it takes is one who is afraid for his life, and that leaves me dead. He could have had a pristine record up until that, but if he's afraid that day, that means it's the end for me. He could have been a bad cop his whole entire career and not be afraid. That means the end for me. I used to think this wouldn't happen to me because I'm a law-abiding citizen. I won't ever be doing anything or be anywhere I shouldn't be. I'll comply with officers, but that doesn't always seem to be the case. 
Here's some examples of what black people were doing when they were killed by police. Selling CDs outside of a supermarket, selling cigarettes outside of a corner store, walking home with a friend, missing a front license plate, riding a commuter train, holding a fake gun in a park in Ohio, holding a fake gun in a Walmart in Ohio, holding a fake gun in Virginia, calling for help after a car accident, driving with a broken brake light, failing to signal a lane change, walking away from police, walking toward police, running to the bathroom in your apartment building, walking up the stairwell of your apartment building, sitting in your car before your bachelor party, holding your wallet, not wearing a seatbelt in police custody, attending a birthday party, laughing. The thing that makes me most afraid is I'll be afraid. I don't know what I'll do if a police officer has a gun pointed at me and is shouting instructions. I'm afraid I'll move too fast, too slow, not fast enough. I'll reach for something he asked me to reach for and he'll think it's a gun. I'm afraid I won't be calm and me not being calm could be the end of me. I'm afraid that I can die in front of my wife or children or both. I'm afraid my children will be somewhere without me and suffer the same fate. I'm afraid the police officer will be in plain clothing so they won't even recognize that this is a police officer and they don't respect him and treat him like the authority he is because they don't know he is. And here's what's gonna happen if I die. People will comment on a post about me and here's what they'll say. If he would have just done this, he would be alive today. If he would have just done that, he'd be alive today. All you have to do is listen to police and you'll be fine. If he would have just listened to the officer's orders, he'd be here today. If you care so much, why don't you care about what's happening in Chicago? What about black on black crime? Don't you care about that? The media will find the worst picture of me to use. And since I don't have any brushes with the law or mugshots, they'll find the most menacing or intimidating photo they can use. They won't use any of my wife or children or my family because that doesn't tell the story that they want to tell. Tammy Lauren will get on TV and tell them it was my fault or Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh will get on the radio. Fox News will have a field day with me. They'll say we don't have all the facts. The video doesn't clearly show. You don't know what if he was. It looked like he was. You can't tell clearly. We can't see what's in his right hand or left hand. You don't know what the officers were feeling. The NRA won't protect me or protect my death. Even if I say I'm a licensed gun owner and I tell the police officer that when he pulls me over. The video will be posted all over the internet in a matter of seconds. And whether or not you want to see it, you will see my dead body lying on the ground or a video of an officer shooting me or me dying live on Facebook. And then people will say it's not about race. We're all one people. All lives matter. And then life will go on. That's the scariest thing. After a while, life will go on. The officers may or may not get arrested. More than likely, they won't be convicted. More than likely, they won't even be indicted. And before you can totally mourn my death, it'll happen again. That's why I'm afraid. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 855- 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Congress shall make no law 
respecting an establishment, uh, religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70 degree weather it takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven at 104 degrees heat stroke begins followed by loss of consciousness yeah. it's an hour and a half or so Leave without your child. Live without them forever. Look before you lock. Brought to you by Kids in Cars. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out, and there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. The conclusion we believe to be on the RP5 saga, if you will, because I'll tell you what, each time we begin to talk about the injustice of these men, um, it appears it sounds like a new revelation of this system, which is horribly bad. Uh, We were just discussing on the break that the judge makes the statement that when a motion is filed to dismiss for insufficient uh, evidence to proceed further in the in the trial uh, was filed with the court. Um, the judge made the statement, and Dave, go ahead and tell us what the judge said, which is telling in, 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 at all points. Go ahead. So we, we quoted this before, but I want to um, bring out the fact at the end So she said, the court, after listening to the defendant's motions and grounds in support thereof and the government's objections and reviewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the government, hereby finds the evidence presented by the government is sufficient to sustain these convictions. We haven't even put on our defense yet. So there has been no conviction. There has been no conviction. So she already convicted you by her own words. With that statement, these these convictions can be sustained, but we're not even at the conviction part of the trial. You know, it's funny. Uh, she knew when, when we were put on a defense, we were going to try to overturn those convictions. So she had to make sure that uh, that she wouldn't allow us to overturn the convictions that she already had in her mind. In her mind, can, they were already convicted. Dennis, how do you do that? I mean, to me, that's just. Wow, you're already convicted and haven't even been to trial. And again, you know, when we're talking about this case, you know, that's just, that's that's right at the beginning. But then we think about, you know, these men, you you just, you just put these innocent men in prison, in prison for debt. Debt that was understood and, and we knew we was going to incur this debt. Because we were going to end up paying paying our debt. But if you look at this case overall, you actually convicted these men saying they, they, they went to prison because they didn't pay their their debt. And, and how do you do that? I mean, and so me, I have debt. I don't know anyone that doesn't have debt. So should I be put in prison because of debt? I mean, come on. William? You know, I... One thing I, I thought about in the previous segment that was really important is that with Aberelli, there was so much that was that could have been gained. The when you talk about it, Demetrius had, had brought up the point. One of the jurors being, I think he worked at a restaurant or something like that. Dairy they, Queen. Dairy Queen. They have no context of the business. They have no context of what the staffing agency, how the business works. They don't have they have no idea. Basically, they're fed what the prosecution and the judge allows them to hear. So when you look at this, you basically have force fed these people, the jury, a false narrative. They have no context to base it on at all. At all. And and so these these things are little things, but they add, but they add up so much. So basically, you leave them you leave them to the conviction, 
by the planting these little breadcrumbs all along the way. You don't allow the defense to put on a proper defense. You don't give them give them no context of the industry. You're saying, hey, these guys dupe the staffing industry. They have no concept of what the staffing industry is or how it operates. Well, for people who have no knowledge of the system, there is no little moment. It's not the little things. That's well, major. Well, this, yeah, and I, I agree. This is a major issue, okay? You let the prosecution put on a case, explain to the jury how everything works. When the defense comes to counter that with a, with an expert witness who's actually from the staff, staffing company, because there wasn't a single staffing company that really told the jury how the staffing industry works. The defense was, we were prepared to do that with Andrew Alvarelli and Miss Kelly Balkum, and we were denied that right, and the jury was denied that information as well, on, uh, upon which they could make an informed decision. They only could go off what the government and Judge Arguello made sure of it, that the only information you're going to hear is what the government has put forth. The defense, we're not going to allow them to put forward any, anything adequate to the jury. And her statement regarding that there was enough evidence to sustain the convictions was an hour and a half before this, before she dismissed Andrew Averelli. You said this was before? Yeah, it was an hour and a half before Andrew Averelli was put on the stand and she got rid of him. So you see that this was all in the works. It was staged. Yeah, it's yes. She she had. There's enough evidence to sustain the the convictions that ha, that hasn't that haven't happened yet. And when Andrew Alvarelli gets up there, oh, we can't let him overturn these convictions. It is it is beyond sick. So because at that point when she said the evidence supports the conviction. She immediately begins to dismantle the case even more. She right. takes it to another level then. So now that she says this is sufficient to sustain the convictions, which has not happened yet, now as soon as Avarelli gets ready to take the stand, let's start dismantling the defense more. And this is in the forefront of the juror's mind. You see, you've the heard jurors of saw this? No, I don't think the, jur the jurors oh, weren't uh, there for uh, that. My apologies. That, okay, that here, please. All right, but it's just, it's just, it's just absolutely unbelievable. I, don't, I, 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 you're almost speechless that a judge could actually say something like that. But you're telling the prosecution, hey, you got a conviction, and I'm with you. That's I mean, exactly you're, what you're, you're saying. You're sending a signal to your team, hey, we won, and I'm gonna make sure it's they won from that moment. But I have a feeling they were already uh, working together. Uh, before then, there, so were, there, there were, were probably some private meetings going on there. Uh, say it. what you want, folks. Look, if it walks like a duck, quacks, I promise you it is one. This is corruption at the highest level of judicial process. Uh, and it, again, it is so mind-boggling that this judge sat on a bench and ruled over any cases. What are you doing ruling on anything? And how then does the appellate court do nothing? Well, you got to ask yourself: Are they are they a part of, of what's going on? It's 
it's sad to say, but are they a part of what's going on? Now, now, now we can understand why former federal appeals judge H. Lee Sarakin yes. said this is the worst injustice he's seen in 60 years of practicing law. That's no small statement. This is not a judge that just got out of uh, uh, an attorney that just got out, out of law school. 60 years. 20 years is considered a lifetime. Three lifetimes. He has never seen anything like it. That should carry weight. Should have carried weight with Barack Obama. Should have carried weight. And, and he was on the bench, I think, for 17, close to 17 years. You know what he saw? But this stands out to him above all else. It's unbelievable. Samson. Just to hear how, like, these gentlemen had, I mean, to say that the scales were tipped in, in the prosecution's favor is putting it not even mildly. It's not even on the radar. But to hear the fact that, you know, as you just mentioned about, you know, Judge Serkin that, I mean, 60 years and, and this is what this is what the, the case that stands out to him above everything else that he's seen above every every trial, every hearing, everything like this miscarriage of justice. I mean, it it's it almost it's almost leaving you like dumbfounded the fact that this could even be allowed to proceed. There, I mean, anybody with two brain cells to rub together could see that there was a conspiracy going on from the word go. But the fact of the matter is, like, again, as we've been going around the table tonight, you know, they're saying, oh, she was helping the prosecution, whether it be withholding evidence, whether it be withholding, you know, witnesses, whether it be coaching, basically, you know, the prosecution uh, team. You know, it's just one thing after another after another. And it just, you know, you can tell it, just, it was insurmountable odds these guys faced. You know, at the hands of a so-called justice system, system and this judge that, again, she had him slighted from the word go. Let's pick it up, David. Where are we as we, again, approach the conclusion here? Well, obviously, uh, uh, we discussed uh, what has been done. Uh, now we're moving on through, through the rest of our case where we start putting on defense witnesses. One of the witnesses uh, we called was a Immigration and Customs Enforcement Special Agent in Charge for Denver, a 30-year veteran uh, federal agent. Now, as we stepped through, he was one of the witnesses we put on the stand. So he writes an affidavit, again, saying that uh, we had a viable software product. He sent this, and we, we discussed that uh, prior, too, because we're going to obviously question him on his affidavit mm -hmm. during trial about the legitimacy of, of, our, of our, not only of our software, but of our business practices. Uh, he had sent a very uh, good letter that benefited us to the lead FBI agent even prior to the raid. Mm -hmm. We had a viable software product and appeared to be moving forward to acquire state and federal contracts this was in a letter uh and put in a sworn affidavit by him now you're getting ready to understand what people right now the institutions of law enforcement are probably at an all-time high when it comes to distrust 
by average people. They just don't trust law enforcement as much as they used to. Uh, and you could you could you could ch- uh, chalk that up to George Floyd. You can chalk it up to various other things. FBI, FISA warrants, falsifying stuff, the way they use national security letters, et cetera, over the years to uh, come after Americans. Uh, now we're sitting here. We put Mr. Hillberry on the stand and we ask him is what in his affidavit, was it true about what he said? He actually looks up to the judge and says, do I have to answer that? A defense witness? A defense witness, but he was with law enforcement. So right now what it appears is happening as we, cause we had a number of law enforcement witnesses to call. So, and he, and keep in mind, Gary Hillberry, along with two other F, retired FBI agents, were independent contractors with the company, with IRP Solutions, that agreed to be paid upon the sale of the software. And they provided subject matter expertise for about a year on investigations of the Department of Homeland Security as well as the FBI and how those, uh, how, uh, how those investigations are conducted, process and procedure, so we can incorporate them to our software. So he was in essence, a part of our software development process and, and, and deeply involved in what we were actually doing. Now he's on the stand, and obviously there's probably been some backroom conversations that he can't really get up here and go against law enforcement. Uh, uh, go ahead and, and let these, these men go to prison uh, and protect the government's image. So his statement asking the federal judge about an affidavit he wrote and was being questioned about on the witness stand, whether or not he had to answer that question. So this is one witness. What happened with the others? Well, there are, there are a number of other witnesses uh, that uh, we had Price Rowe work for the Department of Justice. He's a special assistant to the CIO. Um we had other officials from uh, the Department of Homeland Security that were testifying mm-hmm. about the viability of the software and, and, and some of the work we did with them. So when you start combining a lot of this work and that one uh, official from DHS said that a product like ours would, would state the Department of Homeland Security would have to pay a billion dollars for something like that. Give me one second. Uh, I believe we have a caller. Let's have them chime in now. June, are you with us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Do you have a comment or a question? Yes. Uh, The judge's actions were so appalling in that case. There is so much corruption. These judges have too much power. And it just continually goes on and on. And just it seems like nothing is being done to curb their actions to punish them and until something happens where somebody will get a judge and and charge them with a crime this uh, behavior will continue it will just go on and on and it's really sad um, because it goes on everywhere it's not just one state in one case it's so much uh, going on out there that's wrong um and um it just makes me sick listening to it i'm sorry the irp 
but I've had to go through so much. Thank you for taking my call. And thank you, thank you for calling in. It's true. Um, it's appalling at, at its highest level, what we've seen. We're going to take a quick break, come right back. Let's continue saga of the RP5 story. This is AJC Radio. Two part-time jobs and to help my parents pay the bills. Any problem-solving skills? I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world. The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call one 855 529 Four two five two. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail about half of 1%, less than 1%. That doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. 
Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than one in 100 Americans are currently in jail. But for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself. In the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind, but people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates, and lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised? Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of cost and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that Radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you, for not looking away and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked on. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun, blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. I say this with 
the most sincerity that I can say it with. We are at a true crossroad in this country when the actions of federal judges, state judges, prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys have crossed the line of law in order to secure a conviction. The actions and behavior of Christina Aguayo is absolutely mind-shattering to try to wrap your hands around the actions of this judge who sat on the bench in this courtroom of the RP5 from day one to convict, not to, not to judge or to referee or to ensure fairness on both sides. The prosecution, the government of the United States was in the back pocket of this judge, period. Those are the facts. Uh, as we have come to this point in this show, and the history of the IRP5 story is absolutely unbelievable, yet um, a true reality. Uh, Dave, we were talking during the break about another witness. Uh, David went down that road with the witness that had amnesia uh, regarding his testimony, his affidavit. Uh, the judge didn't pursue it. You had another witness. Who was it? It was John Shannon, a former NYPD officer that worked with the company. And David was questioning him regarding an email and was trying to get the email admitted into evidence. Mm -hmm. And you have to lay the foundation. Is this your sure. email? So he asked John Shannon, is this your email address? And John Shannon says, yes. And he said, well, if the document came from that email address, isn't it reasonable to say that that was your email? His answer was no. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. And when they ask about the content of the email, he says, I don't remember that. And because he would not substantiate that that piece of evidence was actually his, the government objected to the email being entered into evidence that talked about how we went over and above um, in working for the NYPD, getting the software to look the way they wanted it to. Um, we couldn't get it entered into evidence because he wouldn't admit that it was his, his email. And now, wouldn't it be reasonable to believe that his answer was insufficient and that it should have been allowed and, and stated to the judge, we asked the judge allow this into evidence, an objection to the government's uh, position uh, that they made would but when you look in the context of the entire case and the actions of the prosecutor and the judge, it's, it's far for the course. I consider John Shannon at the time a friend. Um, we worked closely with him. We traveled to the NYPD with him on numerous occasions. Uh, he scheduled meetings. Uh, he said the software, he actually said this on the software, uh, that it was the best software he had ever seen. Uh, but when, when the, when the time came for him to put up or shut up about uh, what uh, the truth and what actually happened, uh, he circled the wagons around law enforcement, didn't want to ruin his uh, reputation or his image, and wanted to protect law enforcement. And sadly, this is a is a is a core problem with law enforcement 
in this country at all levels is that they, the vast majority of the time, I'm talking got to be 99.99% of the time they try to protect each other and protect their image. And as a result of that, uh, a lot of innocent people go to prison. Uh, There's a lot of abuse uh, and wrongful convictions. What else can you really say? The system is just not what it's cracked up to be. Let me ask this to all of the RP5. I'm going to get an answer from all of you. Um, I cannot understand or comprehend the, the level of betrayal by people that you work with. As David just said, this gentleman you considered a friend. That is, I can't express the emotion with that. You're working hard. You got a guy traveling with you, believing to your best of your knowledge that he believes in us. And you have a crooked judge, a system. There's no justice system. And to look a person in the eye and betray them. I'm going to go down, go with David first. We're human. We're going to feel that. Your thoughts on on that type of betrayal? Well, it was betrayal uh, at all levels. You you as you sit in prison and you reflect back on all of the betrayal and the people that just lied and. Just all we ask is you tell the truth, but they swore an oath to tell the truth. So it's amazing. I watch TV and 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 how deceived uh, the country is about the criminal justice system. I didn't need a George Floyd or nothing along those lines. And a lot of people who who personally uh, were involved in the system and betrayed by the system and and by people they thought they could trust, uh, they don't need a George Floyd event. It's not the George Floyd events. It's events like ours that are taking place every day outside the bright lights and cameras right. that impact people the most and is, is, is uh, more responsible for distrusting the system than any sort of national, uh, nationally televised uh, injustice that, that we might see or police brutality or whatever. But you got eight years in prison that you spend, you think a lot about that stuff and it's, it's, it's just a painful situation. There's, there's really no other way to explain it. Uh, to be betrayed by everyone. We had no choice. Our people that we had to put, put on were law enforcement, but now remember 99% of law enforcement are good people. You hear that statement it almost irritates me. You hear it all the time. Nine, 99% of the rank and file are good, honest people just doing their job. You don't know 99% of the people. Right. So uh, if you knew 99% of the people personally, then you can uh, legitimately make that statement. Absent that, you can't make that statement. And a lot of these people making those statements has never been through this system to see exactly how it works. And what the attitude of a lot of law enforcement are, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I'm sure there are decent law enforcement professionals, decent judges, and decent prosecutors. I just think uh, 
those numbers are very small. I agree. Demetrius? Um, as David's talking, I do remember that day. And what I remember most about that after John Shannon, um, David worked closely with him. I also worked, worked closely with him because I got him staff. He was in New York. And I remember David chasing, running him down because we couldn't believe he would just get on the stand and just outright lie. I mean, it was a tough just to bring back those memories that can I get someone to just get on the stand and tell the truth? That's all we want. We're not asking for just say what happened. And for you use the word betrayal. I don't even know if there's another word to describe the feeling in that courtroom to just just tell what happened. That's all we want. We're, we're, we're trying to put on a defense and these law enforcement. Uh, that, that's why, um, unfortunately, my, I don't have a lot of faith when I hear these stories in, in the in the um, in, in the media. Because we went, we walked it. We, we saw law enforcement get on the stand and try to dodge the question, try to uh, uh, put this uh, nebulous, uh, I don't know. No, just tell the truth. So to your point about betrayal, watching David run after him, that it was a very, that was a tough day because we were looking for someone to just tell the truth. So that's, that's all I can say. Kendrick. I'll just say this because there, there's a quote. Uh, the arc of moral of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't buy that. You have to go bend it yourself mm-hmm. toward justice. Because I saw more people that say that I'm working for the government, John Shannon including one of them, that could have just told the truth. I would give one. I would say that Price Rowe, one of our, one of the witnesses that stood up, he really was a upstanding individual. He told the truth. That's all. That's all you have to do. But when you say I uphold the law and you're a law enforcement or former law enforcement, you expect me to believe that when you're doing your job, you're upholding the law. But when you sit on us in, in the court of justice, this is where it all accumulates to. But I'm supposed to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, and they don't. I'm not supposed to be a coward at this point because you're supposed to believe that the laws protect me for doing the right thing, right. following the law. But when you decide because – I don't want to have any personal repercussions if it looks like I'm not standing with law enforcement right now. But what about standing with the law, your, your law enforcement? What about standing with the law? If that law – and that law is supposed to be built first to protect the citizens. So I, I have – I'm a very uh, tainted person right now in the view of the justice system because there's people involved. If there was no people and you really did follow the law, I could trust it. But you can't take away people's personal – Biases. Biases and personal self-protection to say they're going to do what is just. Dave. We had people we worked with every day that betrayed us. But we also had a country and a system Mm -hmm. that betrayed us. I mean, we are a week away from the anniversary of 9-11. And this time of year, you reflect on what we were trying to do. And where we ended up, there is more loyalty among criminals. People we met in prison had more loyalty than people we called acquaintances and in some cases friends. And the pain doesn't go away because when you remember it, when you talk about it like we're doing today, it all comes back. You remember the excitement you had in the office when we would get 
somebody that said, oh, no, we want to move forward. We want to we want you to make these changes. We're very excited about what we saw. And then you remember the pain of sitting in the courtroom, realizing that no matter what you do, you're going to prison. And there's nothing you can do about it because the cards are stacked against you. And I believe there's no higher level of betrayal than that. Clint, go ahead. Yeah, uh, it, it is painful, as Dave mentions. It all comes back. Um, I, I definitely would like to, to uh, give a shout out to a guy by the name of Donald Crockett. Uh, I met him at CTG in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, he was a black man, uh, retired Air Force. He got on the witness stand and showed courage. When Kirsch tried to, uh, everybody else betrayed us for sure. Uh, you know, they, they would not tell the truth. Donald Crockett got on the witness stand and he refused to uh, line up with the, uh, with the status quo of what Kirsch wanted everybody to say, what everybody was saying. He was one of the folks that, you know, staffed some of our personnel and uh, he refused. He rejected Kirsch's uh, statements. He said, this was not a criminal act. These guys did not intend to defraud me. I do want my money back, but they did nothing wrong. So I, I definitely would like to, uh, you know, say that I appreciate him. Everybody else definitely betrayed yeah, us, uh, and it yeah. definitely hurts. You still want to put in Scott Tate was another one who actually Yeah, Scott told, Tate as well. Right. You had a few guys spattered in, in here that told yes. the truth, and I think that's a microcosm of criminal cases. You're going to get the vast majority of people not telling the truth, or trying to protect their self-interest. Uh, and you, I believe you can cross that microcosm over to the justice system as a whole as far as prosecutors, judges, uh, and agents actually uh, behaving themselves in an honorable, uh, ethical way. Uh, I, I just believe that's the way the system is, and if people don't believe that, go through the system and watch what happens. And I think, okay. I think the reason they don't tell the truth is for fear of personal retaliation by the system. If they get on the stand and tell the truth, and, and, and because of their testimony, somebody does not go to prison, they're going to be personally retaliated against by the FBI, by the justice system. And that may be the case uh, in some of these cases, but where does integrity stand up? Integrity has to stand up. Because at the end of the day, you may save face today. At some point, you're going to face the fact that you failed to tell the truth. We're going to come back with closing remarks for the RFP 5 as we have concluded the journey of the RFP 5. But I can assure you that this story is just now getting started to be told. Um, I'm saddened by what we have heard tonight. Um, I can only imagine what these five men have been through. Um, it saddens me to a high level. But it's our responsibility to share the story of injustice wherever we find it. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid 
should he ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. I wanted to be in the military since I was a, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we have concluded, only in part, the story of the RP5. Just Cause and AJC Radio will start an immediate social media campaign that we intend to take this message, the shows that we have aired in the last several weeks around the world. 
whether it be attorneys, whether it be advocates, whether it be documentary writers, producers, it is our intention to push this show and the shows that we have aired about this injustice across every line that we can. For those that sit back and think, well, we don't have to hear no more about the IRP-5, I can assure you, you are sadly mistaken. This story will be pushed in a way that will be a tsunami on social media platforms. We simply have come to an end of that story. But the pushing of that story, we will not cease, we will not rest. To every person that we know, to every team member on the social media team, pushes this at a level you have not even seen or comprehended. This story of injustice must be heard. And we intend to do just that. David, uh, it's been a very extensive series. You made a statement regarding there was one option that this could have been heard and something could have been done about it, which was the appellate court. Well, uh, again, it's another... I spoke earlier about a microcosm. There's just not a lot of people out there that's going to do justice. That includes the, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and the appellate and appellate courts across this country. Uh, these issues we spoke about on this show, they were put before the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and again, you'll see that information come out. They did nothing. They don't care if if innocent people are convicted. The system does not care. It cares about whether uh, how judges look. Uh, appellate courts to me are nothing more than uh, what they call a colloquium. That they're just up there to engage in an academic exercise. They're not there about the people. They're going to get up there and flourish on the law and put their rhetoric out about the law and sound and make it sound uh, with beautiful words and, and how this stuff kind of goes together. But really, nobody's concerned about justice in this country. And that is what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate all of our listeners, not only in the United States, but around the globe, to tune into the show uh, that I have personally talked to um, in the U.K., in London, in Australia. Uh, to all of our listeners, collectively, uh, we thank you for tuning into the show next week. A special show remembering 9 11 uh, and the tragedy that took a lot of lives and the very thing that the RP5 were set out to do in their purpose uh, was to avoid another 9 11. How is that punished by injustice? This is AJC Radio. Until next time, good night, America.